Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 17, starting with verse 11. The last time we spoke, we discussed extensively heaven and hell as uh, explained to us in the scripture, and really the swiftness with which anybody can end up in either of those two places. Because like I said the last time, you don't have an appointment with death. You don't know when your time is coming. It's not like a doctor's appointment. It gets you by surprise. We talk about forgiveness, reconciliation, trust, and what type of attitude in general Christians should have. And we saw in Luke 17.10 that Jesus says our attitude should be that of an unprofitable servant. An unprofitable servant. Somebody not to take the center of attention, not to take God's glory. And you see in today's Christian genre, celebrity genre, we have somewhat a departure from that, unfortunately. Today we're going to see the account of the ten lepers. We're going to see that the majority of them, nine out of ten, didn't have, didn't display an attitude of gratitude towards their healing. And we should ask ourselves, what are we thankful for today? Because this is something that all of us can be thankful for. Well, I thank you for your prayers. I know a lot of you are praying for us in leadership and the ministry, and definitely uh, your prayers have an effect. I'm thankful for my wife. My wife is uh, the perfect partner for me. The Lord has really blessed me with a wonderful wife. I've known her for 15 years. But we can all be thankful for something. And today we're going to follow up into the discourse on the last days and the day of the Lord and see what that means. I had a lot of fun studying for the, the end times kind of stuff, so I hope you enjoy it just as much listening as I did studying it. We're going to start with verse 11. It says, Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Well, I'm going to also read Leviticus 13 because it ties in. I'm just going to read two verses from it. Leviticus 13, 45 through 46. kind of talks about the laws of leprosy and quarantine. It says, Now the leper on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn and his head bare, and he shall cover his mustache and cry, Unclean, unclean. He shall be unclean. All the days he has the sore, he shall be unclean. He is unclean. And he shall dwell alone. His habitation shall be outside the camp. So we talked before extensively a few services back about leprosy, or what today we know as, it's known as Hansen's disease. And we talked about how only in the last few decades did somebody find out uh, through an aggressive triple antibiotic uh, treatment to actually cure it. But we also see that thousands of years ago in the book of Leviticus that God had the law of the quarantine prior to man's understanding of it, understanding of microbes in general. Cover the mouth, isolate the sick, and warn the healthy. The Bible is the only holy book that is accurate on the physical and the biological sciences. The Greeks were an incredible uh, civilization, but they were polytheists. They worshipped many gods. They believed that the earth was held up by the Greek god Atlas. He had the earth, he's a real buff guy, and he had the earth teetering on his shoulders, right? You've seen those pictures? We also know that the uh, strain of Hinduism, the god Ganesh, they believed that the elephant god held up the earth on, on their back. So a little competition going between those two. But with satellite photography and going out into space, we saw as we took pictures of the earth that ne- neither of those two were underneath the earth, right? 
Uh, also, Islam, Surah 1886, it says that the sun retreats into a muddy marsh. That's what it says. But what does the Bible say? Well, Isaiah 40, uh, verse 22, written 2,600 years ago, before all this technology, Isaiah said that the earth was a sphere. It was circular. And why do people think the earth was flat? Because they didn't read their Bibles. That's why. It's true. <laughs> Very simple. Job uh, 26, verse 7, 4,000 years ago it was written. God said that the earth hangs upon nothing. There's no strings attached to it, you know, nothing above and nothing below. It just suspends out in space. And Psalm 19.6, written about 3,000 years ago, it says that the sun makes, it way, makes its way from one end of the heavens to the other on a circuit, and we know that to be true. And here, the scriptures today, it speaks about the laws protecting us from microbial invaders if we just follow his word. Wastes are spoken about, how to discard of wastes and refuse, diseases, all that kind of stuff. Now, my ancestors, the Europeans, right, during the bubonic plague era, one-third of Europe was wiped out because of the bubonic plague, right? But what's very interesting is the Jewish people did very well during that time. They were largely saved from this awful plague because they followed the Old Testament Levitical laws, and it protected them from these diseases, right? But the Europeans got away from reading the Bible, and thus they perished, and what's interesting, too, is that the Europeans were suspicious of the Jews because they did so well. And this gave rise to anti-Semitism among Europe. Very interesting. So it was common in this particular time to find the lepers on the outskirts of the village. And they had to lift up their voice to Jesus, meaning they had to shout to them. They had to shout to Jesus because they couldn't be close to the other people. Jesus, you are our only hope. I could just imagine them saying to him. The lepers came to this conclusion, though, when all else failed. When everything else failed, Jesus, you're our only hope. And the question is, where are you today? Where are we today? What are we trying? What is our, everybody has an angle. What's the angle that we're all trying to achieve prior to humbling ourselves and submitting to God? Is it a degree? I hear people say that. Well, I just got to get my degree and everything's going to be great. Well, you know what? We worship education in this country, I believe. That's our God. That's the altar that we serve is education. I have a four-year degree, but what does it mean in, in, in eternal things, right? And it's good to be educated. Relationships. People think, well, if I could just get married, if we could just work things out, things will be okay. You know, what about get-rich-quick schemes? I've seen brothers fall into this and uh, do really bad because of it. But everybody's looking for an angle. Why wait till the end of your rope to come to Jesus? Come to Jesus now. He's the answer to all your problems. Verse 14. It says, So when he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourself to the priests. And so it was. As they went, they were cleansed. Now Jesus is referring to Leviticus 14 in the Old Testament, where after a healing, a, a, leprous, a leprous person is healed, they're supposed to show themselves to the priest. They're supposed to thank God for the miracle and offer sacrifices to God. Notice that the lepers didn't get healed until they first took a step of faith. Notice what the Bible says, that it, was, it wasn't until they actually started following Jesus' command did they start to get healed. Okay? 
Romans 4.3, it says Abraham. Why was Abraham righteous? Because he didn't sin? No. Because he didn't make mistakes? He made a lot of mistakes. Abraham was righteous because he believed God. Righteousness was imputed to him. Also, Hebrews 11.6 says that it is impossible to please God without first having faith in him, believing him. Don't even think about your good works and all that stuff unless you first believe. It says that those who come to God must first believe that he is and that he's a rewarder, a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So this, this Samaritan was, is interesting because he came back. The other nine went, they did their thing, and they weren't really thankful, but the Samaritan came back. The Samaritan had a, uh, a combination of faith, obedience, and also thankfulness. That's a recipe for success. Faith, obedience, and thankfulness. First Samuel 15, 22 through 23, God says, I would prefer that you're obedient to me over your sacrifice. 15. It says, Now one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. Again, amazingly, Jesus' countrymen, nine out of ten of them were most likely Jews, they didn't come back. But this foreigner was thankful and he was grateful. This is a picture of Gentile inclusion into the fold. We see it all throughout the Old Testament through the prophets. They all prophesied about the, the Gentiles being pulled into the fold. And Jesus says in John 10:16, he says, I have other sheep that I have to bring into the fold. A few interesting things about this. Um, you had your nine, I guess, indigenous people spiritually to, to Israel. Uh, God looked at them as the, the rightful owners of Canaan. And then you had your one foreigner. Um, so what happened was, it, it's kind of you can kind of make the, the jump there that it's a picture of when, uh, unfortunately, sometimes non-believers behave better than believers. And that's a sad thing. You ever meet somebody or know somebody who's not a believer and you're like, man, what a... What a good guy, what a, what a great, sweet lady. And man, if they could only come to the Lord, what a, what a blessing they would be to the kingdom, right? The other thing is the attitude of gratitude. How many of us, when we pray, skip the thank you part when we're praying to God and we go right for the celestial wish list, right? It's like, oh, dear Lord, and you go right for the things that you want. Somebody taught me an acronym, uh, it's common, ACTS. Uh, adoration, you adore God, you, you praise him for what he is. Uh, confession, you, you confess your sins because that's a barrier to us and, and the Almighty. Thanksgiving, the T, and S, supplication. The, 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 the I want, I want, I want really should come at the end, right? Verse 17. It says, so Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Was he maybe a little not appreciated, Jesus? Was he maybe a little bit annoyed? What was he feeling at the time? Maybe a little saddened? And we'll go into that a little bit more. Where was the attitude of thankfulness? We talked about acts. We talk about thankfulness in prayer. But what about thankfulness in the temporal world? Is thank you part of our vocabulary? Well, it should be. I've actually had to train myself to say thank you. Because as, as sinners and self-centered people... You know, when somebody does something for us, you almost kind of feel like, that's good, they owe me, you know? But really, we should be thankful when somebody does something for us. We should always show our appreciation. I remember uh, a few years back, maybe five or so years back, I was on patrol uh, in the area of Route 27 and Henderson Road, 
And I came upon a vehicle that was, I, I could hear the engine revving. It was one o'clock in the morning and I saw smoke coming out, but I didn't see anybody in the car. So I pulled my patrol car behind the car and I went to take my fire extinguisher out and maybe put out the fire, but it started catching fire quickly. And what I realized when I got to the car was there was a, a young man in the car slumped over. He had passed out. So I'm like, oh boy. <laughs> so the car started catching fire. And he was a big kid too. He was like 6'3". He was like Dave's size, real big guy. And he's kind of wedged in there, right? So I'm trying to pull on him, you know, get him to come my way. You know, there's a bunch of bystanders. Do you think anybody would help me? No. <laughs> too, there's fire over there. So I ended up getting him over my shoulder, pulling him out of the car, and I took him to safety. You know, I got a medal for it. It was pretty cool. But the thing is, you know, I don't remember getting a thank you, <laughs> you know? It's like if people don't thank you for the big things, they're not going to thank you for the little things. It's training. We have to train our children to say thank you, right? Okay. I mean, I think about uh, my wife. My wife is, and I don't, I don't make my wife do anything, but she, she's a good wife. You know, she cooks for me. She cleans. She does the laundry. She takes care of my son. I'm glad she's in the children's ministry right now because she'd be embarrassed. But my wife is irreplaceable in my eyes. You know, I'm very thankful for my wife. And if you see me not treating her right, you make sure you take me aside and rebuke me. I think of young people, too. You know, when I was a teen or in my early 20s, you just want to get out of the yoke of your parents. You want to take off the yoke of your parents and kind of do your own thing. But the thing is, once you leave the house and now you've got to pay for food and shelter and health insurance and gas and car insurance, then you, you quickly want to come back and knock on the door and ask your parents to take you back inside, right? So we don't, we don't realize. We take things for granted as human beings. Again, I think the second reason, or, this, or the probably primary emotion Jesus might have had, it's speculation, is sadness. Because these people went away with a physical healing, but didn't come back for that spiritual healing, which was more important. I've seen people who, maybe they're not believers, and they, they ask Christians, pray for me, and maybe they'll dabble in God's word or start coming to church, and I've seen this. And then they get miraculously healed, and then they just leave. They forget all that stuff, you know. They just go back to their old life. It's really sad. Because you can look at this verse 19. Um, another translation is, your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you well or your faith has saved you. The whole package is healing plus salvation. You need both. Remember Lazarus. Jesus raised him from the dead. I mean, if he didn't get the whole picture of, of being drawn to God and reconciliation with God and believing in Jesus as Lord and Savior, what's the sense of being risen from the dead, right, only to die again and go to hell, right? It doesn't make any sense. So healing is good, but salvation is best. And it was merciful that he healed the lepers, but Jesus had priorities. His bigger priorities were the promulgation of the kingdom of heaven, you know, even the kingdom of heaven and also his atoning death, as we'll see in the next passage. Uh, we're going to go move on to end times prophecy, starting with the day of the Lord, because that's where it is in the scripture here. But Jesus speaks of his return, the day of the Lord. There's different scriptures in the Old Testament. And again, to the Old Testament writers, the day of the Lord. Oh, man, I, Joel talked about locusts and Zechariah 14, uh, the Lord's feet touched the Mount of Olives and it splits. And, uh, you know, there's judgment involved and blood and fire and pillar of smoke. And all these prophets said something different. So the day of the Lord was a little unclear to the, the people of the Old Testament. But the interesting thing is you can follow Jeremiah 46, Isaiah 13. I said Zechariah 14. 
and also Joel 2. Anthony did a great job, Pastor Anthony did a great job on Joel 2 regarding the day of the Lord. If you didn't get to hear it on a Wednesday night, download it from the internet. It was really good. But the New Testament now, and Chuck Smith said the New Testament is the best commentary on the Old Testament. The New Testament, the day of the Lord becomes more clear. It's expanded. It's really like a time period, starting with the rapture, uh, obviously, and we're pre-trib, and it goes through to the second coming, right? And Jesus is going to discuss that. And let me just give you a few differences between the rapture and the second coming, because there is some confusion. And then I'll try to clear it up through the following scriptures. The rapture. The rapture will come like a thief in the night. There won't be any, any signal to it. The Lord's just going to come back, and the Greek word is harpazu. He's going to scoop up his people from the earth, and he's going to bring them with him, right? The second coming will come as a flash of lightning. It's going to be obvious to the world. Every eye will be able to see it. The rapture will come... Jesus, there's no appearance. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 15, Jesus scoops up his people and they meet him in the clouds of the air. He doesn't really touch down to the earth. The second coming, he touches down to the earth. Zechariah 14, his feet touch down on the Mount of Olives and they split and make a ravine. The rapture is a gathering of his saints. He gathers his saints up to heaven. The second coming, he comes back in judgment. He comes back with a double-edged sword out of his mouth to make war, Right? The rapture is a surprise, but the second coming can be calculated. How? If you look at Revelation 11, it can be calculated. If you look at Daniel chapter 7 and 8, it can be calculated. There's a certain time period to the Lord's coming back. And the rapture, his uh, saints are taken, scooped up, and in the, in the day of the Lord, look at Revelation 19, the Lord comes down to the earth on the white horse and the saints follow him. So there's definitely a distinction between the rapture and the second coming. Okay. So here the message is to be prepared and to be expectant for that return. And he speaks to two groups of people here. He speaks to the Pharisees, the religious teachers, leaders, and he speaks to his disciples. The first group, the, the Pharisees, he has to inculcate the religious leaders as they're mainly hard-hearted. He's got to admonish them, teach them by admonishment, right? The second group, he expounds more to the disciples because, of course, they're open. You're going to spend more time on people that are open to the word than people who aren't, right? And verse, going, starting into verse 20, it says, Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Two things. The kingdom of God is not without uh, fanfare of man and th those types of signs and wonders, but according to Scripture. The religious leaders didn't get it because they already had made up in their mind what type of Messiah they were looking for. Military, political hero, to, to you know, disgrace Rome, we won't settle for anything less. Okay? The other thing is, <laughs> I, you know, when you go to buy food at the, at the market, at the, you know, the, whatever the supermarket, you see the National Enquirer magazine? There was one that said, has Jesus come back? And there's a picture of a guy with long hair, right? And I'm like, i got to read this. <laughs> so, so it's like, oh, there was a man that was in Israel, and he's healing people and this. And I'm like, you know what? People are going to think that that's the second coming. But that has no bearing in Scripture. He's not going to come again the way he came the first time. Don't be caught unaware, the Bible says. And I just read that stuff, and I, I shake my head. But the second thing is the kingdom of God is personal. 
It's personal. It's hard for some people to understand that God is a personal God. God wants intimate involvement with each individual on the planet. And that's hard for people to understand because, you know, when, you, when you're in a crowd, you wonder, how is God having a relationship? How could he have a relationship with all these people around, and me? I'm insignificant. It's the way we tend to think. But we don't understand it, but it's true, right? It's personal. Um, the kingdom of God is within your midst. It's tangible. It's attainable. It's able to be grasped. It's, a, it's available to all, if they will. The kingdom of God is within you. We kind of carry a part of the kingdom of God now in our bodies, as the, the Bible says, we're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, a church doesn't define you, nor does a denomination, nor does a pastor, nor does your Christian friends. What defines you is who you are in Christ and the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. And I, just to give you an example, and it's the only one I could really think of, but when uh, a woman is pregnant, right, she's 20, 30, 40, whatever it is, her whole life, she's pretty much lived for herself, right? I see some pregnant women smiling. But what happens is all of a sudden she's pregnant and now there's somebody else that she has to be concerned about. She's concerned about what she drinks. She's concerned about what she eats. She's concerned about getting proper rest because now it, it's, it's being concerned with somebody else besides herself. And when we become new creatures in Christ and Jesus seals us with the Holy Spirit, now we change our behavior, we change our attitude because it's not just all about us anymore. So to sum it up, Jesus was the kingdom of God. Jesus brought the kingdom of God in his teachings. Jesus left the kingdom of, of God when he ascended. He left it in the form of the Holy Spirit and Jesus will establish the kingdom of God, the fulfillment. That's what we're waiting for, the, the um, establishment of his glorious kingdom. So Jesus gives a little bit more details uh, or discussions about his return to his disciples. Verse 22. Then he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Now, as we go through this, we're going to see that these, these verses now parallel Matthew 24, the end times, and Luke 21. Okay, uh, And we'll try to, again, make sense of the differentiation between the rapture and the second coming. Because God is, God's word is an enigma that's mostly been revealed in the New Testament. And the more we grow in, in the Lord and the more the Holy Spirit teaches us, the more we understand these, these end times events. So Jesus is basically saying to them, you're going to miss me when I'm gone. You'll desire to see the days of the Son of Man. In Matthew 7, Jesus speaks metaphorically about himself. He says about, he's like the bridegroom. When the friends are with the bridegroom, they're having a great time. But when the bridegroom is taken away, they will mourn. The second thing Jesus says is when he's going to be crucified, the women are crying for him and they're, they're feeling sorrow for him. But he said, ladies, don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves and your children. Because if this is what people do in the green wood, meaning when I'm on the earth, what's going to happen when the wood is dry, when I'm removed, right? And to the Pharisees who had hard hearts, basically you guys are missing the point. The first time Jesus came as the Lamb of God to die for your sins, you will look for a military hero and you won't find it. The first stage was, was spiritual revival. The second stage, which has yet to happen, is a physical revival or a kingdom revival. You can't have the second stage without the first stage. 
So there's a down payment. Jesus' teachings and the filling of the Holy Spirit and the fulfillment is the, the conquering of the heavens and the earth and the eradication of sins, right? And Jesus' believers will long for him. Is there anything that we look forward to that's more important than the Lord's return? Some of us may think about a wedding that's coming up. Some of us may think about a financial deal. Some of us, it's funny, when I deal with people who are retiring, they all can count the year, the month, and the day. I don't know, something about that. When it gets to be like two years before, they're all just, it's like a countdown. I just can't wait to retire and I'm, I'm out of here. Somebody said that to me last night. The only thing that should be hindering you in your heart from wanting the Lord to return, and this is an altruistic reason, the only one I could think of is that you have loved ones, friends, loved ones, co-workers that you've been praying for and witnessing to, and you just want to see them get saved before the Lord comes back. I think that's a good reason, but you know, the Lord's timing is his timing. He knows best. Verse 23, it says, And they will say to you, Look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. Now, again, the, you're going to see the parallel in Matthew's gospel with the false messiahs and the, the date setters for Jesus' return. Now, understand, date setting is forbidden in the scripture. And you see so many people who do it. And I've got to tell you, that's what makes Christians look like kooks. When people are setting dates for the end of the world and then it doesn't come. It's like, oh, those wacky Christians again, it didn't happen. That's why date setting is forbidden in the scripture, but men continue to do it and it's wrong. Whether it's the Jehovah Witnesses who set many false dates for Jesus' return, 1875, 1914, 1918, 1925, 1970. Did Jesus come back? No. And their excuse is that he came back invisible and we're going to address that. <laughs> You know, sometimes I wonder, did I say something funny? <laughs> it's true. They said he came back invisibly. I didn't make this stuff up. Or some of you probably listen, and, you know, that's up to you. But Harold Camping wrote a book, 1994, with a question mark. And I bring him up because a brother in the Lord called me, oh, about a week or two ago, you know, new, new in the Word of God, nervous. And he said, I just listened to this guy on the radio, and I'm wondering if I'm saved anymore. Because he teaches that, you know, if you're in a church, you can't be saved because the, the age of the church has, has ended and you have to flee the churches because it's just bizarre, bizarre teachings. And I had to kind of deprogram him, you know. But these are these people that are out there spewing this bizarre doctrine. You can say, based on end time events, that it's coming soon. But you can't set a date. There's a big difference. Jesus held Jerusalem responsible to know the time of their visitation. And we'll get to that scripture. You know the time of the visitation of your Messiah. Because there was things that they would have followed from the Old Testament prophecies to know that the Messiah was going to come in the first century. And actually there was a, there's a lot of dates involved. Genesis 49.10, Hosea 2, 7 and 8, and um, Daniel chapter 9. And these, all these things are calculations to the Messiah's, you know, uh, perusia or, or his advent. But you can't set dates. There's a big difference. Um, Jehovah Witnesses and Camping both changed their doctrines when their prophecies didn't come true for damage control. Jesus said very clearly, everyone will see it. It's not going to be a secret. It's not going to be in the secret places. Okay? I'm actually going to clear up some of this. Uh, there was a, uh, a periodical called Watchman Fellowship Profile. 
And it's good. They follow pseudo-Christian type of uh, organizations. And he tracks three of Camping's books, 1994 with a question mark, the other one called The End of the Church Age, and the third one, Time Has an End. And in the first one, it says, 1994 AD appears to be a likely candidate for the year of the end of history. It's from his first book. When 1994 failed to be the end of the world, Camping still held that 1988, 1994, and 2001 are significant dates for the end times. However, he changed their significance. In 2002, of course, after 1994 didn't happen, Camping taught that 1994 was the official end of the church age, which is part of his second book, The End of the Church Age. In other words, in 94, Satan had completely taken over all of the churches. I'm, I'm a minister of Satan. Boo! <laughs> God would no longer save anybody through the ministry of the church, and true believers should flee the local church and never go back. In 2005, Camping changed the end of the church age to 1988 and reaffirmed 2011 as the probable end of the world. So now people are going to wait, you know, New Year's Eve uh, 2011. They're going to be thinking that that's going to be the year. But it's kind of self-serving because he said that you have to go to a small Bible fellowship, not a church. The church is taken over by Satan, which is self-serving because, number one, he was kicked out of the church for his bizarre views. And number two... Um, the word for church, ecclesia, ecclesia, just means those that are called out. We're called out of the world. So whether you're in a school or a place with a steeple or a, a, you know, a hall that you're, you're gathering together to talk about the Bible, it's all the same, ecclesia. So there's no differentiation. It doesn't make any sense. But I'm going to clear all this up with Scripture. Acts 1, 6 through 11. This is a great portion of Scripture. Acts 1, 6 through 11. So this is uh, just before Jesus is taken up. He's risen from the dead. He's completed his 40-day ministry on the earth. And he's just about ready to be taken up into the heavens. In verse 6 it says, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. They're concerned, just like we're concerned. Lord, when's it going to be? And he's like, Listen, that's in the Father's authority. It's not for you to know these things. But pay attention to what you should be doing. You know, you're going to be, receive power from the Holy Spirit, and this is what I want you to do. Spread the kingdom of heaven. Don't worry about staring up into the heavens and wondering when this is all going to happen. Verse 9, Jesus, or it says, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And when they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So he's not going to come back invisibly. It's not, well, because my prophecy didn't come true, I have to tweak it, so it's an invisible return. It's very clear when Jesus returns, at least the believers themselves will see him. It'll be obvious to the believers. Uh, people can say, well... That means that he'll come in like manner in the whole world, believers. It doesn't matter. Whether it's the whole world or just believers, we will see him return. It's not like he's going to come back invisibly and we don't know that he's kind of walking around, right? So the scriptures clear all that up. Okay. 
Uh, many false teachers have come, false messiahs. You look at David Koresh, that whole thing in Waco, Texas, the Heaven's Gate cult, they mutilated themselves and uh, killed themselves. Jim Jones, I mean, it's just bizarre. It's just a lot of bizarre things that you have to look out for. I tell you what, the Old Testament had a great solution for false prophets in uh, Deuteronomy 18. It was called, they stoned you. <laughs> I'm not advocating that, so don't go out and do that, please. But what I am saying is that that certainly took care of the one false prophet, and that was it. You were done according to the law. Verse 25. It says, but he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So Jesus is speaking about himself. Obviously, this is the crucifixion. Now, understand, we're gonna, it's going to hop around from the second coming, crucifixion, the second coming, and then the rapture at the end. It's going to hop around. Um, but don't be confused because, remember, there's no time to God. When you read the prophetic books, I just, I'm going through Jeremiah, there's 52 chapters. When you read the prophetic books, it can get confusing. He speaks about judgment. He speaks about Zedekiah. He speaks about the post-Babylonian invasion. He speaks about the pre-invasion. And you, you get confused, but you can't look at it chronologically because God sees things, and this is a great uh, analogy that somebody made. If you're watching a parade, you see the front of the parade from your perspective, then the middle, and then the end, and then, you know, that's how you view time. Time, in our understanding, is eternity stamped, minted into little blocks of, of sections, right? When God sees everything, he sees things from an aerial view. He sees the parade, the beginning, the middle, and the end all at the same time. So don't get confused by the differences here. God sees things aggregately, and we see things in blocks of time. And my understanding is in eternity, there won't be any time, and we'll figure that out when we get there. But Christ as the lamb precedes Christ as the lion. By the time the lion has come, if you haven't received the lamb, the lion's not going to be there for good reasons for you. It's going to be too late. Verse 26. He says, And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. I want to read something too from Second Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. It says this, Peter says, Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So the scoffers, do we have scoffers today? You betcha. You know, you, you look out and you could even see under uh, supposed uh, preachers and stuff, they're, they're not believing the virgin birth, they're not believing uh, the actual resurrection, they're not believing the literal miracles. It's, things are changing. They're, and unfortunately, it's crept into the church, the scoffing. For this they willfully forget, but by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth which now exist are kept in store by the same word, reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. <clears throat> Even some, again, Christian, so-called Christian organizations who say that Genesis was just a fable. Well, Genesis, parts of Genesis are referenced all throughout the New Testament. So, I mean, is our faith based on a fable? I don't think so. 
But here, this picture of the days of Noah are a picture of suddenness to the unbeliever, but should be preparedness for the believer. Remember, Noah prepared the ark. The days of Noah, what could you say about them? Business as usual. Everyone carried on with their lives as if they were going to have another day. Kind of seems like the same today, doesn't it? The world's prepared this now. We're looking to control nuclear proliferation. And that's a, a good goal. And if you're worldly, that's your only goal because you're afraid about what other countries are going to do and start a third world war. But you know what? The cat's out of the bag. The Pandora's box, proverbial Pandora's box is already open. It's kind of too late. <clears throat> if you look at, unfortunately, I mean, in the age of um, intelligence, in the age of technology, in the age of uh, information, you can look on the website and find out how to make a nuclear weapon. I don't advise you doing it. You'll have the feds knocking on your door. But you need a few chemicals, a few precious uh, minerals, centrifuges, and time. And we don't know how many countries right now are trying to enrich uranium or plutonium or any of that stuff. But you can see when you look on the TV, the faces, the strain of these, these leaders who are dealing with North Korea or Iran or any of these rogue states, they're, they're strained because they're worried. They're, they're, they're deathly afraid of what this could mean, the whole world with nukes. Now, I understand that we have to prepare, but what if the Lord came back tonight? Would any of that really matter? And I believe that the Bible is clear that God is not going to allow us to destroy the earth with, nukes, with nuclear weapons. I believe that according to scripture, he'll come back before that happens. And really what I'm trying to do is reach out to people who maybe you're even hearing this on the website or a CD that somebody gave you. Uh, you know, I read an article about the post 9-11 world, the post terror world. People in this country are afraid. They're terrified. More people are going to, to the doctors. There was a mass influx after 9-11 into New Jersey from New York. People don't want to live in New York anymore. Um, you know, there's just a lot of bad stuff going on. But you know what? We can talk about all this bad stuff, but here's the key. I can stand up here with a smile and say it with, with cheer in my voice because your hope is not this world. If, you, if you're waiting for the UN to fix the world's problems, you can, you're going to be waiting a long time. It's true. Only Jesus can offer you hope. He's the only one that could make you calm and serene in the face of all this craziness that's going on out there. Um, you look at what's going on. I mean, unfortunately, the media, they only put people on that deride Christianity. So if you were to turn on the tube, you really wouldn't get a good picture of what Christianity is. But you know what? These people don't have the peace that Jesus offers. Look at the cartoons when they uh, have the cartoons of maybe Islam. There was another cartoon they were going to put out, but it was suppressed. They're starting to stifle free speech because these media outlets are afraid that they're going to be attacked by, by people from the Islamic faith. What do Christians do? They've been making fun of us since the age of the printing press. What do we do? Do we storm the buildings and kill people? No, we don't. Because we, we serve a God of, of, of love and a God of peace and a God that wants to give the world hope through Jesus Christ. So, but it's foolish to those other people. And the interesting thing is the Bible in 1 Corinthians says that the, um, the, that people who are, wait a minute, now I'm not going to, I'm not going to remember it. First Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to we who are being saved, it is the power of God. Two, two types of people in the world, right? Verse 28, he says, likewise, as it was in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. 
The story of Sodom, people have a, a one-sided view of what happened in Sodom. Everything happened in Sodom. It wasn't just debauched pleasures, but it was ignoring the poor, the widows, and the orphans. I mean, it was just everything that God said not to do, they did. But the economy was good. And they didn't vote for character, they voted for their wallets. What does that sound like? That's the problem with the human condition, the human heart. Time heals all wounds. These stories are just that. We look at them as stories. Well, they happened so far in the past that you really can't grasp the full gravity of what, what happened here, right? People say that when you go to Israel and you look around and you check out the Holy Land, it really makes history come alive to you. I haven't had that good fortune, but a lot of people I know have. But anyway, it was, it, this happened again. Um, I'm looking at it here, and it's, this is not the rapture. Because the rapture is not for judgment, it's for the gathering of God's people. So some people can say, well, this is a picture of the rapture, but I don't believe it is. Okay? Now, verse 30, it says, Even so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day he who is on the housetop and his goods are in his house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. When the Son of Man is revealed... It's for judgment. And we've talked about the differences between a thief in the night, the rapture, and the flash of lightning, uh, like the flash of lightning, the second coming. But this is also a picture of haste. The homes back then had flat roofs. They actually had socials on the roofs. They would entertain. It was like your patio because they didn't have to worry about heavy snow coming in and caving in the house. So they had flat roofs, and I believe they still do. And they would have like little staircase around the side of the house. And if there was something awful going on, you would... You would come off your roof, scurry down the staircase. You could either flee from your house or you could take your goods. And God is saying not to take your goods. Uh, Matthew 24, 15 through 25 really expands that thought. Now this was, came true. It's going to come true in the future. But it also came true, and Jesus talks more about it in Luke 19 and Luke 21. He talks about when you see the armies surrounding you, this is what you need to do. And what that was a picture of in 70 A.D., when the Romans under Titus Vespasian came and sieged Jerusalem, broke down the walls, you know, burned the, you know, did all these things, destroyed the temple, and slaughtered a great many people, many people followed Jesus' words here and fled, and they were saved because of this. And this, the same thing is going to happen when the Antichrist makes war against the nation of Israel once again in the future. So there's a new thought here in verse 32, and it goes to the danger of looking back. Okay, this is segmented. Judgment for that. Verse 32, it says, remember Lot's wife. One phrase. What happened in uh, Sodom? You know, Lot and his family were removed. They were righteous, and the angels removed them before destroying and raining uh, fire and brimstone on that city. But Sodom's wife, she looked back, and we know the story. She became a pillar of salt. The problem was, really, was not that she looked back and she just wanted to see what was going on. The language goes a little bit deeper than that. It means that when she looked back, her heart was there. Her heart was for the city. She really didn't want to leave it. So we, we look at that, and sometimes we read the scripture and say, well, that was harsh. Maybe she tripped on a rock and looked back, and, you know, I don't think it was that simple. I think that, you know, I believe that it definitely was her heart. Her heart was more for the secular world, for the worldly world, than for God's world. And that should become loud and clear to us. As Christians, our hearts should be for God's world and not the world we live in. The Bible says that we're sojourners. We're passing through this world. This isn't our eternal home. This isn't our permanent home. And we should, you know, I'm not saying we should 
walk up every day and just stare at the sky, but we need to live our lives, enjoy our lives, but always have that heavenly perspective. That's important. Verse 33, it says, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Lot's wife tried to save what she had and what she wanted, and she lost her life. And again, um, to, to, to us, what's more important than giving our whole lives to God? How long have we been Christians? You know, have we truly served him? Can we say that with the talents he's given us, with the finances he's given us, with the, uh, the abilities he's given us, have we served him? Have we served him? In verse 34, it says, I tell you, in, the, in that night there will be two men in one bed. One will be taken and the other be left. There will be two women grinding together, and one will be taken and the other left. And two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Now this is, I believe, again, it's a picture of the rapture. The Greek word is paralambano, which means to be taken, okay, to be taken, which literally means to take with or to associate with oneself. Jesus Christ associates with us. We, he's our, he, we are his identity, or he's our identity, right? He associates himself with us. We're joined to him. That's why I don't believe this is the second coming. I don't believe this is judgment, because we're associated with him. So he's removing us as a picture of the rapture. And whatever this event is, it's very interesting, whether being in bed, meaning denoting night and sleeping, or grinding, grinding at the mill, or working, What's happening is this is all happening at the same time, but different times. Like, in other words, the same period in time, but it's happening at night, it's happening in morning, and it's happening during the day when you work. So this is more of an understanding of a picture of, of the rapture. Different time zones, but boom, he calls his people home. And what's interesting, too, is Revelation 11, when it talks about the two witnesses that are going to come back in the future... Uh, it speaks about how the whole world will see in Jerusalem this event happening with God's two prophets, his two witnesses coming, right? And the whole world will see. And when they're finally killed, the whole world will rejoice and they'll give gifts to each other, kind of like Christmas, I guess. But what I think that's a picture of, because remember, a hundred years ago, people would read that scripture and go, how could the whole world see that event at the same time? It doesn't make any sense it was written 2,000 years ago. What are they talking about here? What is the picture of is technology? And look, I'm, I might be a stretch here, but in the advent of satellites, something happens in Jerusalem today. Everyone around the world who has a TV set can see it. So God knows the end from the beginning. Interesting. Verse 37, it says, And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? So he said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Where, Lord? Again, the questions. In those days, of course, and today's days, uh, you can see it too, is that wherever a, a carcass is, you'll see, wherever you see a bird, a bunch of birds of prey circling and, and coming down, you know that there's a carcass nearby, whether it's eagles or vultures, you know, they, they eat the flesh and all that. But they're, they're, Jesus is answering their questions with that. And what he's saying to them basically is it's going to be obvious. Just like, again, we look at it very simply, but back, th back in those days, it was a very simple culture whether it was grinding at the mill or a wedding ceremony or any of these things, Jesus used simple examples to help people understand what was going on. Hey, you guys see the birds circling over there? Well, that means there's a body there, right? The same thing here. It's going to be obvious. You're not going to have to ask, where, Lord, where, Lord? Trust me. If you are my believers, you're going to see it obviously. It's going to be obvious to you. 
Now, again, some people, again, and, and I could be wrong. I mean, I, uh, nobody, I don't think anybody has a complete handle on the end times prophecy, and, and it's all subject to some debate in certain areas because it is so enigmatic. But some people believe that this is a reference to the great battle of Armageddon where the, where the birds circle and they come down and they eat the flesh of all the mighty men who have been slain in, in battle. Uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39, I believe that is. So, uh, you know, that's, that's a possibility, but I, I think that it's more of a picture of, of obviousness. And the last thing is, going back to the beginning, going back to the last time that we were here, Jesus spoke of the attitude of, of being an unprofitable servant. Here, he's taking that attitude and marrying it to gratefulness and preparedness. Because as a servant, we must have a, a certain attention to preparedness, an attitude of, of preparedness for our master's return and to properly tend to our master's wares while he's gone. This is the whole attitude that we're supposed to have, right? So why is an attitude which yields preparation so important? Because at the end of the chapter here, the last few verses, I don't know if you've seen it, but you see a thread, a thread of separation through all of this, right? Whether it's the wheat and the chaff, the sheep and the goats, the ones on my right hand, the ones on my left hand, the wicked or the righteous in Christ, okay, or the people grinding at the mill or, the, or, you know, these people here. People are removed and other people are staying. It's a picture of separation. So when we talk about the rapture, the second coming, judgment, heaven and hell, we're talking of separation. That's the key word here. Separation is what causes us to cry at funerals. You wonder why you cry at a funeral? Because you're separated from your loved one, right? Separation is what causes loneliness and depression and despair, why are people so, um, they say the worst time for people is during the holidays. Despair, loneliness, it's because of separation. Maybe irreconciled relationships or whatever. Or, you know, it could be anything, but it's separation. But the, let's put this in perspective. The worst separation is going to be when we're separated from God eternally. Our loved ones, yes, but worse off, we're separated from God eternally. And that will be the cause of eternal, vile, painful misery. But, and I always say this, I'm giving you the bad news first because there's good news. You can't really appreciate the good news if it's not for the bad news. The separation doesn't exist anymore when you're in Christ and when you're in heaven because, you know, all you have to do is trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Put your trust in him and all that stuff goes away. The concerns about the nukes, the concerns about separation, the concerns about everything goes away when you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray.